scripture is given by inspiration of God? All of it. So if it's all given by inspiration of God, then so is Ecclesiastes. And God's got a message for us here. And I'm looking forward to uh, tonight finishing it, going through chapter 6 and even part of chapter 7, because 6 is pretty short. So let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for your word tonight. And we pray you will feed our souls. For Lord, we are hungry. We are thirsty. Can you just tell the Lord that tonight? I am hungry, Lord, and I am thirsty for the heavenly manna. Feed me, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good tonight. Perk up and listen. Amen. Now, we're going to talk tonight about the value of wisdom. And um, I've, I've, I love this book. Of course, I've always loved the Proverbs. And um, just the kind of thing I like, you know, just these little truths that are sort of bite-sized nuggets. And um, so Ecclesiastes, the same man, was used of God to pen this as was most of the Proverbs. Now, last time in chapter 5, we left off with Solomon encouraging us to enjoy what God has given, practicing contentment rather than greed. And if you decide to, be, to practice contentment, you've got to do it on purpose. You've got to say, I'm, I really am going to practice being thankful and being content. Because in this day and age, contentment doesn't come and put you in a headlock and say, be content. Okay? You've got to practice it. Now, remember, Solomon is in his old age here. And he has backslidden away from God. It's hard to believe that when Solomon built that temple, that incredible wonder of the world, the Solomonic temple, it's hard to believe and imagine that what the Jewish people went into and practiced uh, their religion and their faith toward God and all the sacrifices. It, it was the, the touch point of the Jewish faith for 400 years. But after 400 years, the Babylonians came in and tore it down, this incredible structure, because of the sin of Judah. It goes to show you nothing is sacred if you sin. That, well, let me put it another way. What God gives you, you can lose it through sin. Because 400 years, 400 years, four centuries, and yet they swooped in and took it. Well, the decline began with Solomon himself, the builder of the temple. Because he broke the word of God. He married a bunch of pagan wives. 700 wives, I believe, or 700 concubines, 300 wives, or vice versa, whatever. That's enough to give any man a total nervous breakdown. Right? A thousand women to keep up with. What did he do on Valentine's Day? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That would be an expensive day, wouldn't it? A thousand of them. Now, this king who backslid, his, his, the foreign wives that he married led him off into idolatry. He went off into a level of idolatry that's really, really hard to believe because he actually built altars finally and ultimately where children were sacrificed in burning flames to the god Molech. Solomon made that available. Solomon. Well, when he died, a divided king with a divided heart left a divided kingdom. His son, Rehoboam, uh, had no wisdom whatsoever. And when he really could have uh, gathered around himself the entire nation of Israel, Israel not being split into Israel and Judah yet, he, he could have gathered all of Israel around him and they would have loved him if he had just done a couple of things like lowered taxes. I wonder if anybody's watching in Washington when I said that. <laughs> Lower taxes... And, and just do a couple of things that, that he was asked to do. But Rehoboam listened to the, his young peers instead of the wisdom of the older men. And when he did that, uh, they said, forget, he said, I'm going to make it harder on you. I'm going to make it, you're going to wish Solomon was still over you. You're going st to wish my dad was still over you. I'm going to make it so hard on you, you're not going to believe it. And right then, 
the kingdom split. And the ten tribes went off to the north, two tribes to the south, the northern tribes of Israel, southern tribes of Judah, and there the decline began. And the decline marched on through the centuries until 400 years after the building of that temple, it was brought down, destroyed, decimated by the Babylonians. And what a tragedy. Just goes to show you, no matter who you are, no matter how great your charisma or wealth or intelligence or pedigree or anything, if you sin, you're going to pay. Okay? Well, you're blessing me so far, Pastor Jeff. Well, I just wanted to throw that out. We need, we need to be wise, don't we? Don't ever take sin lightly. Now, None of this was in my nose. That just came right out of the top of my head because I wanted you to understand that uh, now in his old age, having really messed up, he's writing this book and he's he's on a search and he's trying to find truth and meaning. But a lot of the disillusionment you, you hear in his voice is because he departed from God. So his whole view is under the sun thinking, which means life without God. I am viewing life through the lens of the natural eye, not through the lens of faith in God. Okay, now this time in chapter 6, he's going to focus on the value of wisdom. But first, he repeats some of his former complaints. He's a broken record. I don't say that disrespectfully, but he repeats a lot. Ecclesiastes 6, first two verses. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. Uh, Backing up. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself of all that he desires. Yet God did not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity, and it's an evil affliction. Now, notice what he's saying. Here's a rich man, wealthy man. He's done very well for himself. But he he dies, and he doesn't have children. He doesn't have a distant relative. He doesn't have a friend. He doesn't even have an acquaintance to leave it to. But a total stranger enjoys all the good things that he has saved and worked for. A total stranger gets it. Now, this does a number on him. He says, this is too much. I I, I get all this wealth. And, And yet, I'm so alone. I'm so lonely. Though I got all this money, I've got nobody to leave it to. Not anybody. So when I die, somebody who didn't even work a minute for any of it is going to get it. Sort of like now when we hear about our government is you get whispers in the wind that they're going to be going after our 401k, after retirement funds. They're going to go after that because after all, when you're in $17 trillion of debt, how do you pay that off? You have to rob the folks. But that's another story. But here you got, now he's saying, this really, this doesn't number on me because I've got all this wealth, but wow, the very thought of a stranger enjoying it, a, a squatter in essence, taking all of my money, uh, this is an evil under the sun. Now I got to tell you, I haven't seen this in my own experience. I've pastored over 30 years and my experience has been that at the death of a person of wealth, the family swoops in to take it. The family goes in to take it. And a lot of times it's ugly. And the family is torn apart by everybody wanting their slice of the pie and everybody requiring and demanding a bigger slice of the pie than the others. Here's one of the tragedies I've seen. This is free. A decent will, more times than not, has not been written to make things clear that things can be divvied out without a battle. If you're in here tonight and you've never written a will, do it. Just put together a will. Say, I'm leaving this and this and this to this one, this one, this one. Lest they kill themselves after you're gone. Or kill one another, I should say. And it really becomes a mess. But if Solomon says he saw this, that a wealthy man died and then nobody was there to get it, that he knew and a stranger took it, then, then I believe that Solomon saw that and he wrote about it. Now, 
Next, he forges ahead with yet more things that he considers evil under the sun. Look at verses 3 through 6 in chapter 6. Now, if a man, he says, if a man begets a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. For it, that is, the stillborn child, comes in vanity and departs in darkness, and its name is covered with darkness. Verse 5, though it has not seen the sun or known anything, this stillborn child has more rest than that man, even if he lives a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness. Then look at this question at the end. Don't all go to one place? And that's not talking about heaven or hell. That's talking about the grave. Don't all go to one place? Yeah, eventually. Unless the rapture happens, we're all going to go to the grave. Anybody in here wondering if that's going to happen to you? Everybody in here know that you, you will die one day. If you don't know that, raise your hand. I want to pray for you at the end. Because they say there is one th- there, there's certain things that are certain, taxes and death. Now, several things are mentioned here. First, the man who earns riches, but he's never happy. Now, Solomon talks about that. This harkens back to the thoughts that were in chapter 5, but even before chapter 5. And this whole issue of contentment, that you can be very, very rich, but not be content, not enjoy life, not be happy. Now, that's not always the case, but how often do we read about some movie star, and we read about or a rock star, or somebody that just has all this money, but you read that they're popping the pills and smoking the dope and shooting the dope and they're going into counseling and they're doing everything they can to deal with all these different depressions and problems. And you go, wait a minute, you're rich. You're not supposed to be experiencing this. But the whole deal is this. Money can't buy you happiness. It can't. It won't. Now, I may take some pressure off. You know, no more worry about the bills and so, so on and so forth. But money, here's the richest man on planet Earth talking here. And he's saying it is a vexation. It is something I've seen over and over again. And you think he's not being autobiographical here? Of course he is. Where you can have all this money and not be happy. Because where does happiness come from? Watch this. Happiness is an inside job. Nothing out here. You know where happy comes from? It comes from a Latin root meaning happening. And what it means is something has to happen out here to make you happy in here. The whole idea, this is the American view, the Western view of happiness, that if the right things happen out here, right job, right house, right relationships, and so on and so forth, then I'm going to be happy on the inside. I need a happening to make me happy. But joy is not happiness. Joy springs from within and it comes from getting right with God. That's where it really comes from. And I'm going to tell you, you get right with God and you don't have to have a happening to make you happy because you have come home. And when you come home to him, then, then your spirit aligning with God's spirit, coming back into fellowship with God is the source of joy unspeakable and full of glory. So you either are after happiness from a happening or you're experiencing joy from getting right with God. Now, I would choose living in a, uh, in a wrapped up in a cardboard box on the street right with God over living in a mansion separated from him because you won't enjoy that mansion. You won't enjoy the money. You will not enjoy life. That's what he's telling us. And remember, this is inspired of God. God is speaking to us through this disillusioned, backslidden, disenchanted, disconnected man. If you're content, I want you to say with me, if I'm content, I am rich. Turn to your neighbor and tell them that. If I'm content, I'm rich. 
Now turn to the other side. Tell them too. They need to hear it from you. If I'm content, I'm rich. I'm telling you, this is the fact. If you're content, you're rich. And contentment comes from getting right with God and being a thankful person. Okay? For many rich people, not all rich people, I'm not making a blanket statement, but many rich people are neither happy nor content. Now, second, he mentions a man with riches who has no burial. Now, again, my guess here is that Solomon must have had a particular person in mind for that would really be rare, to be rich and die and have no burial. So I, I think here he's, he, he had in mind somebody that he knew that this had happened to. Now, third, he talks about the stillborn child. And he says the stillborn child is better off than such men, men with wealth who can't really be happy, men with wealth that don't have any joy, that aren't enjoying life. This new, this stillborn child who never sees the light of day, never sees his first sunrise. He's never named. He departs in darkness. And I want you to notice now, Solomon is engaging in classic under the sun, melancholic thinking on his part. As he has throughout this book, Solomon is not looking through the lens of faith in a redemptive God who works all things together for our good. He's only looking at life through his own natural, despondent eyes. Now, here's the fact for the child of God. Our reward is with God. Okay? So you can never say, I wish I'd never been born. That, you don't say that. That's what suicidal people say. And they're not thinking clearly. Um, the stillborn child is not better off than you. No matter how people treat us, our ultimate outcome is to dwell with the Lord in glory. No matter what people do to us or don't do, whether they're thankful to us or not, whether they betray us or are faithful to whatever people do, and people are going to do you good and people are going to do you dirty in this life, you're going to experience both. God never promised that life would be fair, but he did promise that he would be there when it's not fair. Now, we will receive rewards from the Lord at our home going. Now, you know what the Bible calls them? Crowns. Now, before I show you the crowns, there's five of them. I want to make clear, a crown is a reward. It is not something that comes to us uh, because we got saved by the blood of the Lord, the blood of the Lamb. It's not something everybody's going to, going to get. In other words, the five crowns are crowns given as rewards for certain things. Okay? So let's look at them. First, there's the imperishable crown. The imperishable crown uh, found in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 25 is the reward for winning the spiritual race. What did Paul say? I have finished my course. I have fought a good fight and I have kept the faith. What is he saying there? Hallelujah. I was triumphant. I ran the race and I won. I walked in the Spirit. I did the will of God. Though I stumbled some, messed up some, I got up and kept on going. I broke the tape at the finish line at the end. I ran to win. I walked with the Lord, never forsook Him. And therefore, there is for me an imperishable crown. Amen. Amen. Then there's the crown of rejoicing. I like this one. That's the, uh, the, the crown for soul winning. Did you know that if you get out there and win a bunch of souls, he that winneth souls is wise, the Bible says. Why? Well, because souls need to be saved. But beyond that, there is a crown that is given as a reward when certain people get to glory for winning souls. So no doubt in my mind, for instance, Billy Graham will get this crown, crown of rejoicing. But you know what I hope? I hope Jeff gets one too. And what about you? How many people are, have, have come out from the dark side to the light side because of you? How many are walking with the Lord now who weren't before because of your witness, your testimony, your reaching out to them? He that wins souls is wise. The, the crown of rejoicing. And then there's a third crown, the crown of righteousness. 
Now, apparently, this is for guarding the faith. Guarding the faith. Second uh, Timothy 4.8. Now, that's where in the end of Paul's statement where he said, I've fought a good fight, finished my course, I have kept the faith. Now, I, I believe that has a twofold meaning. I think it means he kept his own walk with God. He kept the faith. He didn't go off into some weird religion. He didn't embrace another God. He didn't defect from the Christian faith. But I also think it means that he kept the faith. That is, he was true in his testimony of the faith. He didn't say, well, it might be the way. There's many ways. Uh, Just find your own way to God. He kept the one and only faith. Now, what what did Jude say? Jude said, earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Well, what is the faith? That there's only one way, that only one Messiah, Jesus Christ, died on the cross, shed his blood on my behalf, that there is no other way to be forgiven but through him, that he was born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, that he died on a criminal's cross, though he was not guilty of anything. And then he was put into the grave. And after three days, he rose again from the dead. And then he ascended back into the Father, back into the Father. And now he ever lives to make intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now, that is the faith. And let me tell you something, church. I have a burden on my heart tonight. I want to take the faith, not any faith, not some optional faith. I want to take the faith, the faith I just told you about, once delivered to the saints, to the whole world. I want to take it to as many as we can in as many ways as we can, as fast as we can, the faith. And I believe if we will stay true to the faith and not bend, bow, break, or back down under politically correct pressure, but we will stay true to the faith, all of us together will get a crown of righteousness on that great day. The faith. And I can't tell you how that burns in me. I'm about to have a Holy Ghost moment. It just burns in me. I am so angry at what is being done to the faith. How they're twisting it, skewing it, misrepresenting it, diluting it, polluting it. I'm sick of it. I want to take the faith to the world. Because that's the only faith that will save your soul. Okay? We just had a moment, didn't we? All right. All right. Now, here's another crown, the crown of glory. This is reward for those who faithfully pastor God's sheep. Amen, amen, amen. The the crown of glory is for faithful pastors. You can read about that in 1 Peter 5, 4. Now, the last one, the crown of life, is for those Christians who are faithful Love him and hold fast. And Jesus talked about this so much as his crucifixion drew near. Matthew 24, Matthew 25 are all about being faithful, loving him, having oil in your lamp, looking for his return, being ready for his appearance, and hold fast. That's the crown of life. So, so, Solomon wasn't thinking of any of these things, was he? None of these. He didn't have any of these things in mind as he viewed life only from the here and now and goes off and talks about a stillborn being better off than you. The Christian should always keep in mind we're going to be rewarded on that day. Whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. For of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. Okay? If you got it, say, I got it. All right. Now verse 7. Here he goes. All the labor of man is for his mouth. And yet the soul is not satisfied. He just can't get away from it, can he? To the natural mind, you know, that old saying, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. 
There you go, right? Because you got to feed your fleshly appetites. So he says, here's what I'm observing. All the labor of man is for his mouth, but his soul remains unsatisfied. Now, again, Solomon is belaboring the fact that there is a vanity involved in work. There is. If, if you don't know the Lord, there's a vanity involved in work. Vanity meaning, meaning futility, meaning what is all this for? What am I doing this for? Your work, uh, or you work and you work to keep food in your mouth, yet your soul remains unsatisfied. Now, what he's seeing here is the very thing that God pronounced on the human race following the fall. That's what he's seeing. Now, what did God pronounce? Look at Genesis 3, 17 and 19. He, he finds the first couple after they have fallen. He looks at the man and he says to Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. What's the first word that comes next? Cursed. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both, verse 18, both thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Now, something has radically changed here with work. Now, let me be clear about something. When God created Adam and Eve, before the fall, he called them to work. Man has always been commissioned to work. God told Adam, I want you to keep the garden. I want you to till the ground. I want you to work the ground. I want you to get out there and work, labor. Six days you will labor and, seven, and the seventh day you will rest. God has always called us to work. He's, because that is where we are creative, productive, where we have a sense of fulfillment. God has never, ever called a culture to opt out of work. The Bible says in the New Testament, if any man will not work, he shall not eat. That's what Paul wrote. If any man will not work, he, sh- he shall not eat. God never had in mind, now please take this right. Because I get in trouble for this when I say this, if you don't really listen to what I'm saying. God has never ordained a welfare system. What keeps an economy going when everyone is working? God has never called one half of the population to live off of the other half of the population. Never. That's unbiblical. Pastor Jeff, uh, I know people that if there wasn't welfare, they would starve. I know there are a few of those, but not the vast majority of them. And I want to say to the vast majority who could work but don't, who could find a job. And if you, and if you can't find your, your golden career, get something under the golden arches until you get your golden career. I've done that. Man, when Kathy and I graduated college, I just knew I was going to go take the world by storm and not one door opened. You know what I found myself doing? I found myself in the daytime selling mace on 100% commission and at night, painting office complexes. And boy, the devil used to hop on my shoulder there at night on a stepladder, reaching up towards some ceiling about 11 o'clock at night when all day long I had sold mace, trying to put bread on the table, taking care of my family. And he'd hop on my shoulder, where's your God? Where's your dream? Where's your vision? Look at you. Here you are. And he would get all. And one day I got off that ladder and I had a moment with the devil. I told him to get off my back, leave me alone, that until my golden opportunity opened up, I would do whatever I needed to put bread on the table. Now, listen, there's far greater sense of purpose and meaning, even if if it seems um, insignificant, to get out there and earn your way. That's what God gave Adam and Eve to do. He said, Till the garden, till it. But something changed after the fall. He said, now you're going to have pain with it. You're going to sweat. And a thing called thorns and thistles are going to come up that apparently weren't there before. So he would get stuck. He would experience pain in his labor. And the woman clearly was meant to give birth pain-free until the fall. 
Now that's the curse. But guess what? Good news tonight. Jesus came to reverse the curse. Hence, the New Testament's filled with, wor- with how work has now been redeemed and restored to God's original intent. I want you to understand that tonight, church. Whatever you do for a job, no matter how menial it may seem to you, you are doing it as unto the Lord. You are working for Him. Therefore, it is not manual labor. It is Emmanuel labor. Everything you do. He has redeemed work. So you get up and say, who's your boss? Jesus. Well, who are you working for? Well, it's a, it's a company, but, but, but really I'm working for Jesus. I do it as unto the Lord, not unto men. Look at this verse, Colossians 3, 23. Work willingly at whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. You didn't know that was in the Bible, did you? There it is. And then he goes on. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. As a reward for what? Doing your work as unto him and not unto men. You get up with a good attitude. You get up and you say, I'm doing this for you, Lord. Here I go out the door. This is as unto you. You're my Savior. I love you. Give me strength today. Give me the right attitude. Help me to put a smile on my face and be a testimony for you. And redeem my work because I have been redeemed from the curse of the law. Okay? So read the last part of that passage with me, would you? Out loud. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Wow. Then Solomon asked a question, verse 8. For what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? Now, in his half cynical, half ironic mood, here's what he's saying. In the end, the poor and the wise are on a level playing field. Both the wise man and the fool experience discontentment. And guess what? In God's eyes, nobody's better than anyone else. At the cross, the rich man and the poor man, black man and the white man, red man and the yellow man, famous man and unknown man are all equal at the foot of the cross. There are, there, God is no respecter of persons. Okay? So once again, this does not reflect New Testament truth, this whole idea that um, what, he, what he says in this verse that... Uh, you know, it's not really worth it to be wise. It doesn't really pay off to walk in wisdom. The wise man in Christ is far better off than the fool. Now, next he observes in verse 9, Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Now, this is real simple, isn't it? You're better off to be comfortable and content with what you have than to experience the restless and insatiable wandering of desire. You know, there are some people who never have enough. No matter what they get, it's not enough. They want more. But Solomon is repeating over and over, as does the rest of the Bible, that we ought to be thankful every day for what we have. It doesn't mean you give up your dreams and ambitions. You can shoot for a higher level. But in the meantime, I'm content. I'm content. Having food and clothing, says the Bible, we will be there with content. Well, there's not a one of you don't have clothing or food. I'm so glad all of you have clothing here tonight. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? Contentment is a great gift. Okay? So his next observation is a bit difficult at first. This is a tough one, it seems. But look at verse 10. Whatever one is, he's been named already. For it is known that he is man, and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Now, most of us will read that and go, huh? And let me tell you what he's saying. He's saying here that what we are has already been decreed by God. You can't change what he made you to be. You can get some cosmetic surgery, but you're still you. Amen? You can't. Now, We are, here's what he's really saying. We are man. We are human beings. And we can't change that. We can't contend with the Almighty about that. It doesn't do any good to look at God and say, why did you make me like this? It doesn't do any good. Because here's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm coming to terms with providence. When God creates something, 
There's nothing I can do about it. And I'm a human being and I am who I am. And the only thing I can really do is accept that and embrace that because I can't go argue with God and make him make me something I'm not. Didn't Popeye say I am what I am? And that's all what I am. I'm This is a church that knows Popeye. But you know, old Popeye, that was a true statement. That's what he's saying here. I am what I am. And that's all what I am. I am a human being. And God made me thus. And so I embrace that. You know, it, it, it does you good to say, Lord, thank you that you made me me. Thank you for my DNA. Thank you for my genetic code. Thank you for the color of my eyes color of my skin. Thank you for the talents I have. I'm not going to focus on the ones I don't have. I am what I am. And that's all what I am. I receive the providence of God. He's ordered what he's ordered. He's created what he's created. He's decreed what he's decreed. And we're helpless to change any of that. Amen? So do you hear a little bit of acceptance here? He's saying, all right, I accept. I come to terms with it. God is God and I'm not. I've read the job description and he's the only one who can fill it out. He's God. But I'm not. So I accept who I am. Let's just try that. Say with me, I accept who I am. I accept what he's made me to be. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, next, Solomon mentions the emptiness of vain chatter. Look what he says in verse 11. The more the words, the less the meaning. You ever know anybody like that? <laughs> the more the words, the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? Now, you'll notice if you have a King James or authorized version of the Bible, here's the way it reads. There be many things that increase vanity. Now, look at that word, things. The word for things in the Hebrew can either literally mean things or it can mean words. Most translators go with the words translation. But if it didn't mean literally things, there are many things that increase vanity. He's pointing out the pressure of, uh, of just living life, the affairs of life, what we call business, paying the bills, raising the kids, going through the motions, going to work, coming home, sitting in rush hour traffic, all the things that come to bear on us just to live life, the cares about many things. Remember Jesus said to Martha, 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 you are careful and troubled and worried about so many things. And they make men feel the hollowness of life. If you don't know God, you will finally, sitting in that rush hour traffic, going to work yet another day, and now you're in your 50s or 60s and the silver hair has crept up on you or you don't have it anymore. (laughs) And you're seeing yourself get old and you ask yourself, what is this all about? There are things that increase vanity or futility if you don't know God. Now, if he's talking about it, words, he's likely pointing to endless discussions about destiny, philosophy, speculation, about ultimate meaning, and all these things people talk about. This, says Solomon, is also empty and hollow because the philosophy of the world doesn't lead you to God. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. According to the traditions of men and after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ, Colossians 2.8. Vain philosophy, philosophy that doesn't include Christ, will leave you hollow and empty and disillusioned. But it may also be pointing to the person who endlessly chatters about anything and everything. Have you ever been around somebody who just talked to talk? Have you? Yeah, I mean, we all have, right? They just talk to talk. They like to talk. They like to hear themselves talk. They just talk. Talk, 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 talk. Talk, talk, talk. You ask them what they just said. They don't know. They just wanted to talk. It's very, very common. If you're married to one, look right up here at me. 
Have you ever noticed this person says a lot without ever really saying anything at all? This is also hollow and empty. I'd rather hear two wise words than two hours of empty chatter. So, verse 12, he says, For who knows what is good for a person in life? During the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow. Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they're gone? This closing verse seems to support the view that philosophical discussions is what Solomon had in mind in verse 11. That there are many words that increase futility. Because as people chatter on, they really can't speak to some of the deepest needs of your life like God can. Who knows what's good for a person? Who can say? All these discussions lead nowhere. They solve nothing. Yet again, it's not true if the discussions are about what God's Word reveals to be good for us. Total truth is found in the Holy Bible. Is it not? So if somebody wants to sit down and talk to me about what's in the Bible, I'm all ears. Lay it on me. If you've got some truth from the Word of God, give it to me. Because that's not vain chatter. That is going to edify, strengthen, exhort, and comfort. Now, the best and most profitable, uh, profitable discussions to have are those that are centered on the teaching of Scripture. These kind of discussions uh, edify. Now, we're going to go into chapter 7 for just a few verses, and then we're going to close. And as you get into chapter 7, I feel a shift. And it almost feels like we're reading out of the book of Proverbs here. Solomon lays out one pithy saying after another. Pithy meaning the use of few words in a clever and effective way. Nobody could say a lot in a small amount of words like Solomon. And that's, what the, that's why I love the Proverbs. You read one verse, and you can see law that thing all day long, what you read. Okay? So he was a master at that. Now, in the first ten verses, he compares one thing with another by focusing on which of the two is better. Can you say with me, better? So he's going to hold up two things against each other and say, here's the better of the two. So verse 1, here's the first better. A good name is better than fine perfume. And the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, the fragrance of a good reputation is more noticeable and pleasurable than that of a rich perfume. You know what's heartbreaking these days, folks? It just seems like people don't care about their reputations anymore. You know, they just do dastardly. Look at Washington. Look at the things we see all the time coming out of there. You know, looking you right in the eye and lying to you. All kinds of scandals and trouble, just constant wickedness and sin. And, I, and I'm sorry, I, that, this is the way it is. I, I got to call it the way I see it. Lying and subterfuge and deception and theft and all these things. But you know what gets me? They don't seem to care. When the Bible says you ought to guard your reputation like you guard a million dollars in a safe in your room. Guard your reputation. The person known for honesty, integrity, moral uprightness brings with them into the room the fragrance of good character everywhere they go. You know what I remember most about Billy Graham? Not that he preached to millions of people, but that he walked clean. That stands out to me more than everything he did in his ministry. Okay? The day of death is better than the day of birth only if the person that died left behind the testimony of upright character. They fought that good fight, finished their course, kept the faith. Now look at verse 2. Here's another better. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Now, what is he saying? Is he saying we ought to hang around funeral homes? <laughs> is that what he's saying? You could take it that way. No. It's better to go to the house of mourning. Now, he's talking about a funeral where, where people meet together at the death of a loved one to celebrate their memory. Now, why would he tell us it's better to go there than to go to a party? Better than to go to the house of feasting or to party hardy, where people gather to indulge their appetites in excessive eating and drinking. 
For death, says Solomon, is the end of all men. And his point is we should consider that one day we're going to die and are we ready? That's what he's saying. And and let me tell you what, people at a party, the last thing they're thinking about is dying. So to see an example of a loved one there in front of you and they have passed from this world, you know what it does? It inspires serious consideration of our own mortality. Conversely, drinking and partying are characterized by stupid levity, manifold temptations. I guarantee you most people that go to a party where there's a lot of drinking and drugging, most of them the next day regret something from that night. Because it's only a huge temptation in many different forms. These things, says Solomon, are not wise. So it's better that you somberly, soberly consider that you are mortal and one day you will die. And are you ready to meet your maker? That's better than going and drinking and laughing and carrying on and never considering that that very day you could go. I never preach a funeral that I don't share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I've had packed out funerals. I could tell that most everybody there did not know the Lord. And I can't tell you how they listen when you quote the simple gospel, how they tune into you. Why? Because they're faced with the reality of mortality. Okay? Now Solomon continues his comparison between silly, endless partying and sober reflection of the true realities of life which is better. Verses 3 and 4, and we're going to close here. Let's read it. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. Now, if I read that, I go, so he wants me hanging around funeral homes and always being sad. That's the way you can take it. But he says, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. He is not saying here, folks, that we should walk around depressed and sullen. He's likely pointing to what we would call conviction over sin. That's what he's talking about. Conviction over sin, which brings a sad countenance. You ever seen somebody laughing when they're convicted of sin? No. But in the long run, it leads to true life. Better to have a sad countenance that is caused by conviction for your sin than to be off at a party drinking and partying and never facing the real realities of life. Let me show you what Paul said about a positive kind of sorrow in his letter to the Corinthians. Look at 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. He says, I am not sorry that I sent that severe letter to you. The letter being, they had a very immoral man among them. And gasp, they dealt with it. They called it sin. He was living with his stepmother, which today would hardly cause a blink. The Paul said, what are you doing letting him go on like this in the church without dealing with it? So he wrote them a letter and scathing them for thinking that they were acting in love by putting up with it. He said, that's not love. Love is to call it sin and bring him to repentance. He says, though I was sorry at first, for I know it was painful to you for a little while, but now I'm glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. So you were not harmed by us in any way. Now look at verse 10. Read this with me, would you? For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. He said, there's a good kind of sorrow. When you get convicted for your sin, and you know there's sin in your life, and man, the Holy Spirit convicts you for it, and you repent, then that sorrow worked for your good. That's the kind of sorrow Solomon's talking about when he says, better for you to have a long face and deal with the real realities of life than to be off partying oblivious to everything. That's what he's saying. 
This is the kind of sorrow Solomon was talking about, and this is the kind of sorrow that we need to be willing to embrace. If God convicts you for something, say, oh, God, forgive me. I do have a long face over this. Forgive me and restore me to you. And as soon as you do that, it worked for your good. Amen. Next time, wisdom brings strength. Can we stand together tonight? We made it through some tough verses, didn't we? Some of those are, but I love it. How many of you are liking this book? Isn't it good stuff? It's good. It is good, reflective theology. Now, let's pray together. Father, we just thank you right now that the sorrow that comes from you, Lord, by conviction over our sin brings repentance that brings us into life and relationship with you. Lord, we receive this wisdom inspired by you that you moved on Solomon to write down. Help us, Lord, to practice contentment, to be thankful for what we have. To be people who consider the real issues of life and therefore live wisely. Help us, Lord, to never envy the sinner, but to all day long live in the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of true wisdom. And thank you, Lord, that there is going to be a crown, maybe more than one crowns that you're laying aside for us when we reach the other side. Thank you, Lord, that we don't work for man per se, but we labor as unto you. Help us to sanctify our work to you and work as unto you in Jesus' name. Thank you for the wisdom of this book, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name.